Good evening, and it's uh, good to be here to study the Bible together uh, tonight. And we finish up our last chapter in the book of Daniel. Um, and we'll read the whole chapter, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll get stuck into it. Uh, why don't you turn with me to Daniel chapter, t- chapter 12? That's page 890 in the Bible that's under the pew in front of you. And what we see here in this last chapter is that um, God uh, promises to conquer death itself. So we'll read about that here, starting in verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine, with, shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, O Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all of these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, What will the outcome of this all be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Well, this is God's word. And why don't we just uh, pray that God would give us understanding and wisdom as we uh, study it. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, as we look at your word tonight, uh, there are things that are very clear. We see the resurrection of the dead. There are also things that are unclear. And so we pray that you would give clarity to our minds, that we might live uh, for you and that we might live to know you and to worship you. Lord, we thank you um, for your word, and we pray that you would use it to illuminate us in our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, the big question that's asked here in chapter 12 is when will it end? That's Daniel's question. When will it end? And it's a question I often ask myself as I'm listening to a choir and I hear someone singing flat and inside I'm dying. And it's the same question that Zian 
uh, asks when he hears me singing flat, when is it going to end? When will it end? It's the question that uh, people ask the doctor, when will this uh, cancer end? When will this sickness end? When will this pain end? When will it end? Uh, it's the question uh, my, my Oma asked her pastor in the days leading up to her death. Uh, the pastor at the funeral told this story about her, uh, how in her last days she said, Pastor, I want to go home. I'm going home. And the pastor said, Yes, Kobe, you'll be in the arms of Jesus soon. And she said, No, I want to go back to my condo. <laughs> and in the end, she was ready uh, to be in the arms of Jesus, where she is now. But she too lived asking that question, When will it end? When will the pain end? When will the sadness end? When will the hurt end? And Daniel's asking that question here too. When will it end? And he asks this question as he stands on the Tigris River. You remember that the Tigris River runs through Babylon. And he, um, on the Tigris River, has met the risen Lord. The Lord has come to him in a vision and has revealed, uh, given him a glimpse of the future. Look at verses 5 and 6. We see the Lord, God the Son. He is there above the river. And he is speaking face to face with Daniel. And beside the Lord on his left and on his right, there are two angels. And um, Daniel, as he listens to what they are saying, he has had enough of all the pain and the frustration and the trouble that has accompanied him in life. We remember that as a young man, Daniel was taken away into captivity. His hometown, Jerusalem, his city, had been attacked by the Babylonians. It had been sieged for several months. And uh, the temple had been ransacked. And Daniel had been taken into captivity. And then after many years of living under the thumb of a, a tyrannical ruler and a corrupt king, another king, a Persian king, rises and he comes to power, and he defeats the Babylonian, and then he rules uh, tyrannically himself. And then after this king rises and falls, the Greeks would come to power, and they would enter the temple, we remember. They would take a pig, and they would sacrifice it in the most holy part of the temple to mock the, the God of the Jews. And then after the Greeks fell, the Romans would rise. And uh, so what we see in the book of Daniel is we see this this pattern or this cycle of kingdoms rising and kingdoms falling. Kingdoms rising and then kingdoms falling. And we see that through chapters 1 to 11. And we read about war and devastation and sadness and oppression and pain. And so we get to chapter 12 and Daniel's asking that question. When will it end? When will this stop? When will the pain end? When will all of this suffering and this tragedy end? And he asks this question twice. You look at verse 6. What will the outcome be? And then he asks it again in verse 8. And how does the Lord respond to him? Well, we see that God responds to him with an oath. He lifts up his right hand, and then he lifts up his left hand. You know, when you swear an oath in a court of law, you often lift up your right hand. Well, he has an angel on his right and an angel on his left, and he lifts up both hands, and he swears to both of them that there will be an end to the pain, that there will be an end to the suffering, and that this pain that Daniel is experiencing will only last for a time, a times, and a time and a half. 
And so God himself makes a promise to Daniel. And that promise is true of us as well. That the, the pain and suffering we see in life and in the world around us will have an end. Now, in this chapter, we are told, through, I want, told three things. I want to highlight three things. I can't actually be as comprehensive as I would like to be uh, tonight, but I do want to point out three things. So if you're left with more questions after the service, you can always come and ask me. But we'll look at three things. We'll look at, at the end of trouble and the end of sin and the end of death. And we are told that those three things will come to an end. And the Lord swears it to Daniel, and he swears it to you as well. Now, in verse 1, we see that there will be an end to trouble. And also, we see that the end, the end times, these last days that we live in, they will be marked by trouble. Look at verse 1. We read that there will be a time of distress such as not has ha- that such has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. Now people argue about when this time is and they debate about when this time is. But I think it's safe to say that throughout all of human history we we experience these times of trouble and distress. Didn't Jesus say that in Matthew 24? That as the end slowly approaches that there will be war in the world and rumors of war and nations against nations, and kingdoms against kingdoms, and famines and earthquakes, and China and Taiwan, and Russia and Ukraine. And we see on a global scale that there is trouble in the world. And we are explicitly told that there is trouble in the world here. Bombs being dropped on innocent families. As some nations have so much food, they don't know what to do with it, they're throwing it away. Other nations are starving. We see people everywhere. And what are they doing? They're calling good evil and evil good. And then, of course, we see trouble in our community. We see home invasions. We see theft. We see burglary. We see abuse. And we see trouble also in our own lives, personally. Some people experience this this dark cloud of depression. Others feel the constant nervousness of anxiety. We go to children, go to school in terror because they know that they're just going to be harassed over and over and over and over again by bullies and people that are going to taunt them. We uh, put up with poor treatment at work, don't we? Because we know that this is the only job that we can get, and that if we lose this job, we won't eat. And so, the list could go on. We face trouble. It's all around us. We can see it. We can see it on a global scale. We can see it in the community. We can see it also in our own personal lives. As a Christian, life doesn't necessarily get easier. You know, whoever said that... uh, Uh, Christians will be healthy and wealthy, they lied. In the words of one pastor, God has not always promised that the skies would be blue, that there would be flower-strewn pathways throughout our life. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, and peace without pain. And the, the, the reality is, is that life gets harder 
as a Christian, it doesn't get easier. Because not only are you dealing with all of the same problems as unbelievers, but you also have the pressure of living the Christian life, of living in a countercultural way, of living in a way that people don't necessarily respect or understand. And so we all, we all face trouble in life, believers and unbelievers alike. But for the Christian, sometimes there's added pressure. And these, these added difficulties make life uh, even more burdensome at times. Life in this world is not getting any easier either. Uh, there, are times when it, there are times when it seems like God's people have been snuffed out, stomped, and shattered. And that's what verse 7 says. Look at verse 7. That as the end draws near, before the end, at some point before the end, that the power of the holy people will have finally be broken. And then all of these things will be completed. And to summarize what that means is that the text is saying that as we draw closer and closer and closer to the end, it would appear as if the church, God's holy people, are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Another translation says that God's holy people will be scattered. In other words, as the end approaches, the church will suffer in some way, shape, or form. It will struggle. And as encouraging as it is that you know, we have this this beautiful building, uh, this lovely congregation. Uh, we have, um, you know, after the service, we'll have good food that we'll get to partake in. We are told by this passage that life may actually get harder for the church and not easier. I was really struck by what Alistair Begg said on this. And I'll paraphrase what he said for you. This is, this is what he said. A time may come when the doors of the church are boarded up, where every church in, in town is shut down, where pulpits are removed, where ministry is suppressed, and the only expression of the church in that given town or city is a dad reading the Bible to his child. And of course, we pray that that would never happen. Of course, we don't desire that for our church. But as Alistair Begg pointed out, it's already happening. It's happening in North Korea. It's happening in Saudi Arabia. It happens in parts of China and Afghanistan where you have a, a town and there's just one Christian and he's training his, his child in the faith. And so we should not be naive that that would never happen here. And so what we're told here is that the world is a troubling place. There's no doubt about that. And yet God comes to us in this world. Christ himself came to this troubling world. And he experienced even more trouble than we are experiencing now. Like, think about it. Jesus, didn't, Jesus lived in this world that didn't have any modern medicine. He lived in a world uh, where infant mortality was really high. He lived in a world where infections killed people because there were no antibiotics. He lived in a world where the government of his day was corrupt. Life was generally more difficulty in the day that Jesus lived. And then, of course, in addition to all of these inconveniences, we know that Jesus really suffered. 
He was betrayed by his own friend Judas. He was rejected by his own family. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was crucified. So, our experience is not unique. And I'm, I'm not the only one that has had a tough go in life, n- nor are you. And we recognize that some people have it more tough than others. But we all experience difficulties in life. Our Savior experienced difficulties in life. And, and perhaps when life starts to spiral, and we start to spiral, and we start obsessing about the, the pains that we're going through, we need to remember that there are other people in our midst that are going through those same things. And as a church, I mentioned this in my last sermon, we go through that together. We don't go through that alone. Now listen to this. God also helps us, we are told. And he helps us in our weakest moments and on the darkest days. Now imagine, just going back to chapter 6, imagine how Daniel felt when he was marching off to the lion's den, when he had been betrayed by his own colleagues, and he had to face a night in a pit of lions. You know, I get anxiety just looking at the lions at the zoo. Yet in, in Daniel's weakest, most terrifying moment, he discovered that God was with him. And again, through, as we read the book of Daniel, we see all these trials. We see the trial that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced. They, they discovered that God was with them in the flames as well. And we see back in chapter 6 that God sends an angel to Daniel to deliver him. And we read that an angel is in the pit and he's there closing the mouths of lions. And it's really interesting, actually. We see throughout the book of Daniel, we see angels all over the place. Angels here, angels there, coming to deliver people from trouble. And then here in verse 1, you'll see the first thing that we read is that at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. Who is Michael? Michael's an angel. We don't talk a lot about angels in Presbyterian churches, but we should because the Bible is filled with them. Now, this angel is a special because uh, he's an archangel. In 1 Thessalonians, we're told that when Christ returns, that he will return with the shout of an archangel. And there's another thing that I think about this angel. He's a type of Christ. Now, a type is like a, a symbol or a representative. This angel is not Jesus, but in some ways he represents Jesus. His name, Michael, means who is like God. And he is called the prince of God's people, and he comes to deliver God's people. And he fights for God's people. Now, what we see here, though, more importantly than that, is that Michael comes in their time of need. God sends a helper to his people in their greatest hour of need. And we're told here, Daniel is told that deliverance is coming. And not just, you know, deliverance from Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh or some mean-spirited, arrogant ruler. Deliverance from what? Well, deliverance from trouble. Deliverance from sin. Deliverance from death. Deliverance from famine. Deliverance from injustice. Deliverance from war. Deliverance from everything that plagues this world. 
You know, our friends who worship in, in secret in North Korea, they will be delivered. They will be delivered from that dictator one day. And eventually, when they meet the Lord in glory, they will worship uh, without fear of death. Our dear brother who watches live stream for health reasons will one day live in the presence of God with no pain. He will be delivered from his pain. And my grandmother, Janelle's grandmother, they have been delivered from their pain. And this chapter points us beyond this life to the next life. It reminds us that for all of God's people, there will be deliverance. And that brings me now to a second point. We see that there's a deliverance from trouble. There's also the end of sin. Now, there's a song that some of you probably know. Um, It's actually a terrible song. It has terrible lyrics. It was written by John Lennon. And it goes like this. Imagine. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion to. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. And he's kind of under this delusion that, that the world will become a better place if there's no religion and if there's no God and if there's no heaven. And he thinks that, that this world will be so wonderful, but what, he's actually, what this world actually looks like is really hell because it's a place that's devoid of God. The world he hopes for, he will never see. But I want you this evening to imagine something different with me. Imagine, perhaps, the world that the Bible actually speaks about in Revelation 21 and 22. Imagine a world where there are no prisons because there is no crime. Imagine a world where there are no lawyers because there is no divorce. Imagine a world where there is no social workers because there's no abuse. A world with no nuclear weapons because there is no war. A world where there is uh, no bullying and human trafficking and theft. And, you know, I could expand on that, but that's the world that we're presented in Revelation 21 and 22. And um, Daniel is, is given a little glimpse of this world, a deliverance from pain and suffering. Now, before we ever enter that world, we are told that we must all appear before God. We must meet our Maker. The God who created us, who gives us breath and water to drink, who has provided for us all these days of our lives, He will examine our lives. We are told that here in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. And we read this. We read that many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Well, the first thing I want to say about that is you can't read that and not see Jesus in that passage. There has been a resurrection, and there have been multiple witnesses to that resurrection. And that resurrection is a guarantee of our own resurrection. That's amazing, isn't it? And so here, even in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus would ever come, we see Jesus. 
and we are promised His resurrection. We are also promised our resurrection here in this passage. Before we ever see heaven, we must first see God. And we are not going to see Him as these floaty spiritual beings, but we are going to see Him with real eyes and a real body and a real brain. That's what we're told here. And all Christians confess, confess this. We all confess the final judgment and the resurrection of the body. And it's hard to imagine it, isn't it? it, it the, the final resurrection, what we're told here, that, that the people who have become the dust of the earth will rise, that, that the urn that sits on the mantle will crack open, and hands will form, and a face will form, and legs will form. That the, think about this, the sarcophagus of Pharaoh, it will crack open, and the mummy will come out. Not actually. But he will have life, and he will breathe. And Mao Zedong, who is in Beijing, who lays in this mausoleum, he will open his eyes too. And Mark Twain and Abraham Lincoln, and, and it's probably not going to be the way I just described it, but it will probably happen in ways that we cannot fathom or ever imagine. And God will do this. And we are also told here, this is the, one of the only places, I think this is the only place in the Old Testament where we're told about the double resurrection, the resurrection of believers and the resurrection of unbelievers. You will have in that resurrection little old ladies and mafia bosses. You will have Genghis Khan and Winston Churchill and you will have Louis Armstrong and you will have Beethoven and Einstein. If you just really think about it, you will have Peter, James, and John, Saul, Judas, and Nebuchadnezzar all in one place together at this resurrection because we are told in Scripture that all people be, will be resurrected from the dead. And all of these people, they all have something in common. None of them deserve heaven. All of them have sinned. And that's what the Bible says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of them meet God's requirements to enter into heaven. And what we need to remember tonight is that we are just as unworthy to enter heaven as they are. We are just as unworthy as the, the most hardened criminal. And there, there are people who have this attitude, I think, or we sometimes see this attitude, both in the church and outside of the church, that thinks or acts as if they deserve heaven, that heaven is something that they've earned and that for whatever reason, that they are better than the hardened criminal. It's the attitude of the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee who, who prays to God and says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this man. The person who says that they've done something to deserve it, they've served the church for so many years, they've helped the homeless, they serve on the school board, they're really nice people. I'm not a criminal. I'm a law-abiding citizen, and therefore I'm bound for heaven, and, and I'm going to play golf for eternity. That's the attitude of some people. Sometimes that's our attitude. But we of all people, as Christians, should know 
that we stand guilty before God apart from Christ. Even if I sin just once a day, I'm just about 33 years old, okay? And if I sin once a day, that leaves me with a debt of 12,045 sins throughout the entirety of my life. We all know that I'm far worse than that. Janelle can tell you that. But how could I possibly atone for 12,045 sins? How could I possibly undo the big sins and the small sins and the terrible sins and the mundane sins and all the horrible things that I've done? I can't. And neither can you. And so we have no other choice but to come before God and to confess that we do not deserve the kingdom that he is offering to us. We do not deserve a place in that kingdom. Isaac Watts, uh, one of my favorite poets, he wrote this song in this hymn, and it goes like this. He said, How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within its doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I a guest in your kingdom? Why was I invited to be in that place, that holy place with you? God, why did you invite me into this kingdom? Why did you suffer for me? Why did you die for me? Why did you save me of all people? And when we say those words, why me? Do we say them with pity? Because we think we deserve more? Or do we say them with gratitude because we know that we deserve less? There will be a final judgment if you believe the Bible, as I do. And it's unavoidable. Daniel 12 makes that clear. But in that final judgment, Believer, you will get what you don't deserve. We will get what we don't deserve. That's the beautiful thing about grace. Because Christ was punished in your place. And verse 1 actually tells us that, doesn't it? Look at verse 1. It says, But at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in that book, will be delivered. We're told there that our names are written in, in a book. If you go to Canberra, there's the, the war memorial, and you'll see all the fallen soldiers, and their names are lined up and etched in stone. And they will be there as long as that stone is there. Well, your name is etched in a book, and it's not written in pencil. But our lives Our souls have been purchased by Christ, we're told in this passage. Christ was punished for our sins. And we received, He received what we deserved, and we received and will receive His reward. And we will live in His presence without sin. Now, can you imagine that day? The day when the graves will be opened when prisons will be closed, when the paralytic will walk and the blind will see and no one will wear a face mask. How good is that? That's because there's no sickness. 
and there's no death. And we will live in that place in the present, without the presence of sin. And Christ, through his death and resurrection, promises us that. Now, there's a third thing we are promised in this passage. We are promised that there will be an end to death. And you probably know that this week has been a challenging week for our family. I'm sure you've had challenging weeks in your life before. And it was challenging because we've, we've been confronted by death. Some of you know that feeling all too well. You, you miss that person. You miss their smile. You miss their laugh. You miss their embrace. You miss sitting in the same room with them silently. You, Christmas approaches and there's an empty seat. And even after a lifetime, you feel as if you didn't have enough time. And then you have the awful task at a funeral of lowering their body into the ground. And then after the casket has been lowered, the family disbands. And life is never the same. Death is horrible. And thank God that Daniel, the book of Daniel, promises that there will be an end to it. Speaking of death, David Pallison said this, when people finally muster up the courage to talk about death, sometimes they romanticize it. They talk vaguely about release from pain, going to a better place, being reunited with our loved ones. But the Bible never portrays death as a friend. Death is the final and ultimate loss in this life. It feels unnatural and wrong because it is. We were created to live forever with God. Death is not what God intended for this world. It's what David Pallison says. And I think we can all say that it is horrible. You know, you, you, you watch that person that you love go through incredible pain. It's, it's a horrible, horrible thing to see. But the beauty of the gospel is that Christ came to destroy death. 1 Corinthians 15 says that death, the last enemy that will be destroyed, is death. Now, here throughout the book of Daniel, you, you've seen the rise and fall of empires. You've seen all of Israel's enemies rise and fall. Babylon rises and falls. Persia rises and falls. Greece rises and falls. Rome rises and falls. And here in the final chapter, we see the rise and fall of the greatest enemy, death itself. And we see God is going to conquer it. And he conquers it. The paradox is that he conquers it by dying himself. God will destroy death once and for all. And, and that just that Revelation 21 brings us so much comfort. God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will no longer exist any longer because the previous things have passed away. We need to think of the implications of this. Murder will no longer exist. The 18-year-old soldier who has lost his life in combat. Uh, the car wreck that brutally rips husband away from wife. None of that will no longer exist. There will be no dead bodies in heaven. And listen to this. There will be no dead souls in heaven either. 
There's a kind of death we know as Christians that is spiritual in nature. A kind of deadness that affected Pilate, that affected Herod, that affected Pharaoh. A kind of deadness that affected Judas. A kind of deadness that affected Hitler and Pol Pot. A deadness to God. Now have you ever, perhaps you've done this, sat on your foot the wrong way? And your foot goes completely numb and you touch it and there's no sensation and then you slap it and there's no sensation and then of course the tingling starts but for a moment it's unresponsive. There's a kind of deadness, a kind of numbness. Even though you're living, you're actually dead. You're actually numb to the the things of God, to the feelings uh, towards God. You don't think that God deserves worship. You don't think that God should be served. You certainly doubt and do not trust God's Word, you look at God's Word with suspicion. There's a spiritual deadness that people experience. The Bible speaks of the spiritual deadness. A kind of deadness. This kind of deadness is the kind of death that we see in verse 10. Look at verse 10. We see that here, the wicked will keep living wickedly. And so, Daniel also talks about this kind of spiritual death. A death that does not respond to God. People who are perfectly perfectly happy living without God. And it's through the preaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel, that God's own voice calls out to dead people. And calls them to live. And commands them to live just like Jesus commanded Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come out of that grave. And Lazarus lived. And that's what Christ does to each and every one of us. What he has done to each and every one of us. Through the preaching of his word, he calls out to you. And he says, John, Mary, live. Now, I can tell you that over the last four years, I've never seen a physical resurrection, but I've seen four resurrections, spiritual resurrections, where the power of God through the preaching of his word has laid hold of someone's life and has taken the hardened heart and changed it and revived it and renewed it. And that's what God does in the heart. He raises dead people. Look at verse 10. I think the NIV has a better translation here. But it says this, many will be purified, meaning that in these last days, as people grapple with God's word, they will be changed. And they will be changed by it. God will use this message to what we, what we call sanctification, to sanctify, to change, to renew us. And he uses his word to give us life and to renew our faith each week, doesn't he? I was struck by this story. It was told by a pastor named Brian Chapel. A Christian couple came to him on the brink of divorce. They said, we're getting a divorce because we've tried absolutely everything and we cannot reconcile our marriage and nothing has helped And Brian's response to them, I think, was quite bold, but it was true. 
And he asked them, do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? And they said, well, of course we do. We've been at your church for the last 10 years. And Brian said, well, if you can believe that God can raise Jesus from the dead, then what's stopping you from believing that he can fix your marriage? And they didn't like that at first. But then a year later, they came back. And they testified to the the ways that God graciously restored that marriage. And we have to remember that the same power that raises the dead is also, the Bible says, Christ in you, the Spirit in you, God changing and transforming and renewing your life. And God does that work of renovation on the heart as we look to Him in faith. And so, friends, I leave you with these three promises tonight. I know I can't tackle absolutely everything in this passage. I want to. But there are those three promises tonight we see in this passage. There will be an end of trouble. There will be an end of sin. There will be an end of death. And before I end this sermon, I'll just quickly, uh, let's look at verses 11 and 12 here. Because we've got numbers in the book of Daniel. And I haven't tackled verses 11 and 12. Daniel asks that question, how long until the end? And there is actually an answer. It's, uh, the Lord says to him, 1290 days after the temple is desecrated, the end shall come. Blessed are those who make it today, 1335. And that's roughly three and a half years. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to be honest with you. I've spent the whole week trying to find an answer to that. And I, I just haven't. Uh, I, well, I've found multiple answers. But I keep getting swayed one way or another. And the answer to me at this point is unclear. So I'm not going to stand here from this pulpit and tell you something that I don't know myself. But I do want to say something about those numbers. Something important these numbers remind us of an important truth that God has it all mapped out. God does have our days numbered. He knows the day and the time of our birth and of our death. He knows the hour that Christ will return. And he calls us to persevere until that end, to stand firm, to endure and so even though we, we, we might not understand fully what those numbers really mean, I think it's better that I don't take out a calculator. I'm really bad at maths. But what we can know is that God does have our lives in his hands. And he knows when the end will come. And so we can take comfort in this. Life is hard. Sin wreaks havoc in this world. Death stings. But Christ will overcome all three. And one day, friends, you, just like my grandparents, just like Janelle's grandparents, just like your dear mother or father or sister or brother or son or daughter, you will see him face to face, but you will be free from the pains and the sufferings and the trials on that day. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, Lord, it is difficult to imagine what that day will look like. We're given 
just a glimpse of it in your word, we are told that at the end of time, there will be no death, sin, or trouble. And Lord, we long for that day. But as we wait, help us to endure, help us to persevere. Lord, help us to stand firm under the weight of the world and give us grace to do so. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.